everyone. Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast. I'm Jamie DiPolo, the Senior Editor at BreastCancer.org. Our guest today is Ann Partridge, MD, and she's the Founder and Director of the Program for Young Women with Breast Cancer and the Adult Survivorship Program, as well as Senior Physician at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard University. Dr. Partridge is a medical oncologist focusing on the care of women with breast cancer and has a particular interest in the psychosocial, behavioral, and communication issues in breast cancer care and treatment. In this podcast, we're going to talk to Dr. Partridge about the positive trial. This study is looking at whether women diagnosed with hormone receptor positive disease who stop taking hormonal therapy after about one and a half to two and a half years of treatment to get pregnant have a higher risk of the breast cancer coming back, which doctors call recurrence. Most women diagnosed with hormone receptor positive disease take hormonal therapy for about five to ten years after surgery. In the positive trial, the women who want to get pregnant are stopping hormonal therapy for up to two years to become pregnant, deliver the baby, and breastfeed. Then the women start hormonal therapy again. Dr. Partridge is leading the United States arm of this study. Dr. Partridge, welcome to the program. Hi, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about the background of this study. Um, The number of women interested in this outcome, I'm assuming, is on the smaller side. Uh, But my suspicion is that the women who are interested in this are extremely interested in the topic. So how did the idea for this study come about? Sure. Well, you've got it exactly right that this is for a real what we call niche population That being said, it's such a critical issue for our young patients. So historically, when women get hormone-sensitive breast cancer, particularly at a young age, we've all said, oh my goodness, hormones are bad. We need to treat with anti-hormonal medications, of course. That's a mainstay of breast cancer therapy. And the conventional wisdom was having a baby after breast cancer, especially hormone-sensitive breast cancer, was like throwing gasoline on the fire and fuming the flames or fueling the flames. And and the fact is that many young women over the years can and do get pregnant after a breast cancer. When you say uh, throwing gasoline on the flames, is this because the estrogen levels go up when a woman is pregnant? Yeah, yeah. Because of the hormones in breast cancer, the concern was, excuse me, the hormones in breast cancer, there was concern that it might be driven by a pregnancy and drive the risk of recurrence to go up from where it would have otherwise been. But the data, when you look back and you say, wow, but you know what? Women do get pregnant after breast cancer and many of them do extraordinarily well. So let's look and say, is that true or is that a wives tale or just kind of being paternalistically protective for our patients when In fact, we're protecting them from something that really matters a lot to them. When they've looked back, done fairly rigorous retrospective work, it actually appears that women who have a pregnancy after breast cancer do just as well, if not better, than women who don't. And given that, and given some of the biologic reasons why they may even do better, although I don't tell someone to go out and get pregnant to help their breast cancer risks, We've said, you know, this is a critical issue for young women, and there's reason to believe it doesn't likely cause harm to have a pregnancy after breast cancer, and they're going to do it anyway. We know that many young women go and have babies anyway because it's such a driver in their lives, not all, but many. 
let's figure out a way to study this so we can more fully inform those decisions, which as you can imagine, and anybody who's listening who's ever been in this situation, I empathize with, it's a tough decision. A doctor is saying, take this hormonal therapy for five to 10 years, and you're saying, wait a minute, I wanted to have my babies and start my family. That's that You just can't reconcile that. So this is kind of a compromise to say, let's study it in a careful way and follow how women do and see if there's hopefully not any truth in the wives tale or if there is then we can use that to inform future patients that makes complete sense how many women um, are you thinking you need to recruit for this study to get really good results the plan is to recruit approximately 600 patients and we are actually well on our way so last month we accrued our hundredth patient and um, that's worldwide and we really just started to take off in terms of accrual in the United States um, and North America overall where I'm the uh, principal investigator so I'm pretty optimistic that we will get to our full accrual because as I said this the numbers of women who are young and get breast cancer is a minority and then of those women the numbers who will desire a pregnancy and desire to stop early and have hormone sensitive disease are a minority too. Uh, but they're there and they're, you know, they are a critical uh, minority of patients that we want to take care of and try and figure this out for them. Now, women who stop taking hormonal therapy for this study, um, if I read the parameters correctly, they need to wait at least three months after they stop hormonal therapy to try and get pregnant. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And they need to enroll in the study if they're going to do it formally as part of the study. And thank you very much to women who are willing to enroll because of course they can go and get pregnant on their own. They don't need a study for that, but we're going to follow them very carefully and measure lots of things surrounding their decision as well as uh, medical and psychosocial outcomes and fetal outcomes, baby outcomes, if they're able to get pregnant and then have a child. And so the women need to enroll within a month of stopping their endocrine therapy or enroll and then stop. And then there's a three month washout. So whenever they stop their endocrine therapy, we don't want them to start trying to become pregnant for three months. And the rationale for that is that tamoxifen, which is one of the mainstay hormonal therapies, takes a while to wash out of a woman's body. And we tamoxifen, if it's on board, increases the risk of a birth defect if a pregnancy or conception occurs while a woman still has tamoxifen in her system. So we're being pretty conservative with that and saying, you know, really, we don't want you to start trying to become pregnant. And if you're using contraception, we'd like you to continue to use that until you're ready to start, which we don't want you to start until three months into the washout period. I know the aromatase inhibitors, which is another type of hormonal therapy, are mainly used in postmenopausal women, so women who could not get pregnant. But um, I have seen some cases where an aromatase inhibitor is used in a premenopausal women along with ovarian shutdown for various reasons. Are there any differences in your study between women taking tamoxifen and women taking an aromatase inhibitor? Yeah, so the only difference there, so women taking aromatase inhibitors are also, uh, if they're premenopausal or presumed to be, are also candidates for the study. The only big difference is that in order to take a, an aromatase inhibitor as a premenopausal woman, you also have to be on an ovarian suppression shot. Your ovaries have to be asleep with medication. And so that drug also has to wash out. 
most women are and, and in order for their ovaries to function, right? Because they're shut down temporarily. And so it doesn't change their eligibility, but it might change the timing with which their periods come back. Because some women on tamoxifen are just having periods through it if you're on tamoxifen alone. If you're on ovarian suppression, which some women are taking with tamoxifen and some women are taking with aromatase inhibitor, you have to be on it if you're taking an aromatase inhibitor, it may take a little longer for your periods to come back, especially if you got chemotherapy. And so what I've been advising women is some of them, if they're on, especially if they're on tamoxifen, I've been saying, you know, if you really want to get going and you want to start right away, which most women do if they're going to take that break, you want to start trying to conceive as soon as the washout period's over, I say then maybe you stop your, your, uh, your ovarian suppression shot at the beginning. You know, maybe you stop it a couple months before you're ready to start, stop the tamoxifen. And then you're only washing out the tamoxifen for three months, but your periods are more likely to come back faster. Now, obviously, that depends on how much endocrine therapy and what to what degree of the endocrine therapy I want to get into a woman and that she agrees to before she starts to try and become pregnant. So there's lots of nuance there. And the same, you can't apply that same logic to the aromatase inhibitor people because women treated with aromatase inhibitor, they can't take the aromatase inhibitor, or at least it won't work unless they're on the ovarian suppression. Uh, and so for those women, you, you would stop it at the same time. It wouldn't make sense. Is there a longer waiting period? Um, if I understood what you said correctly, it sounds like the um, the ovarian suppression shot may take a little bit longer to wash out of a woman's system. Not about birth defects for that one. So we're not requiring any longer. It's really about your ovaries waking up. So, so your ovaries on tamoxifen aren't asleep. So stopping that, we expect the ovaries, if they're going to function, to be working in three months. If you put them to sleep with a shot, it may take a little longer than three months. So a woman who, you know, and presumably most women who are doing this want to kind of get pregnant, you know, when they're ready and then get through that pregnancy, nurse a little bit and then get back on because we wanted them to complete the full five years or 10 years, depending on what they've decided over time with their doctors and, you know, what's best for them and their disease risks. And so it's a little harder to assure the, re, the, re, the, the awakening of the ovaries with Lupron than it is with tamoxifen. Although, you know, it's, it's tricky. For, it's very variable between individuals, especially if women got chemotherapy, because, you know, their ovaries may be a little more sleepy because of the chemotherapy, too. Now, what about a woman who is listening to this and maybe has been on hormonal therapy for four years? Uh, and is thinking, can I enroll in this study? Is that possible or is it, does it have to be kind of in the middle? So it has to be kind of in the middle. The experiment here is saying, we're going to interrupt like smack dab in the middle of your endocrine therapy, and then we're going to get you back on. And is that as good or good enough? And we're actually going to compare the women in our study. We couldn't randomize women to you get pregnant and you don't, because right. obviously what woman would take that decision, you know, but that choice, you would, we would, nobody would enroll, which we understand. And so instead we're going to compare the women in our study to women with similar disease risk in very recent clinical trials of young women, like the soft study and the text study and some other data sets where we think we can do a nice job. You know, you, the, you're not supposed to compare across studies but sometimes you don't have a great choice and that's our best choice. And we, so we have modern series of women who've gotten various treatments like women are going to be getting who go on to this trial or will have received to go on to this study. 
and we are going to compare them, therefore, to those historical controls. Now, has there been any other research looking at recurrence rates in women who've taken a break for hormonal therapy, whether to get pregnant or just because the side effects were very debilitating, um, you know, whether they, they stopped for any reason? That's a little bit complicated. So there are, I'll break it apart. So first, there are studies that have looked at women who had a pregnancy after breast cancer and women who didn't. And presumably the women who had a pregnancy after breast cancer would have come off any hormonal therapy during the time of their pregnancy. So de facto, those women either stopped or interrupted their therapy. They might've been on it when they got pregnant. These things are not as well documented as we would like in these retrospective studies. And so, and those are the data I quoted earlier where I said that there's actually evidence that the women who get pregnant, even in ER positive disease and also in ER negative disease settings, seem to do just as well as the women who don't get pregnant after breast cancer with regard to their ultimate survival. So that's the first question. The second component of that is, and why this is not a no-brainer, is that we do also know though that women who don't take their tamoxifen well, for example, or their aromatase inhibitor well, and we term that in the field adherence. They don't adhere to the recommendations of a daily pill for five years, and they either stop it early, or they take it intermittently and like take the weekends off, or because you know they take long breaks because they can't stand it either because of side effects or because of you know other reasons. Uh, we do know that adherence is associated with doing better. So women who adhere better have better outcomes. Of course, that's not just in young women, though. That's across population. And that's not to have a pregnancy usually, right? Because that would be the minority of people who would be coming off. Because we already talked about how much young women, especially those going on to get a, have a pregnancy, are a small group of the overall hormone-sensitive pool. And so we don't have an answer to the question that you asked. We have bits of information that make it one of the great reasons why we're doing the study. We don't have the right answer to answer that question. We worry a little bit, like the taking a break might be harmful for someone. That's why it's part of a study. That's why it's a discussion that you have. As, you know, I, as a doctor, say to my patient, okay, there could be risks here. And depending on that woman's risk of recurrence of her cancer to begin with, I am more or less enthusiastic about the study for that woman and her taking a break. So for example, if I have someone who has a small node negative cancer, who's already at low risk of hearing from her cancer, and she's itching to get pregnant, we're all going to feel better because the risks are lower. And therefore, any risk reduction from full five years of therapy or from that break part is going to be small because she's likely to do well anyway. Uh, in contrast, if I have someone who has multi-node positive breast cancer and I'm worried about her, then that person, just in general, I'm going to be more worried about taking a break for any period of time to get a pregnancy and, and you know have a pregnancy and all that. That being said, I also worry about that patient's emotional health and her future and her desires to get pregnant. And so, you know, I have a colleague, for example, who has a patient with multi-node positive breast cancer and the patient was saying no to endocrine therapy. She said, no, I'm not taking it. I'm going to get pregnant. Can I go on after? And my colleague said, you know, I really want you to get risk reduction. There's a survival advantage to taking tamoxifen. I forget exactly what she treated, was treating her with. And the patient said, no, the patient said, absolutely not. I refuse. 
it's more important to me to have a pregnancy. And my colleague was able to actually convince her to take some hormones because of the positive trial. She was able to say, will you at least take 18 months? And therefore, you'll at least get that degree of risk reduction under your belt, because we know that is better than nothing in the first year or two, and then try and have a pregnancy. And the woman agreed to that. So, you know, in some way, it's a compromise because there are real risks. And, you know, for that woman, the the decision, the default decision for her was, I'm not going to do what the doctor is recommending because this is such a critical life thing for me. And so this was a way to manage that. Not everybody's to that extreme. And, I, you know, I've talked people out of the study before. So I want to be very honest. You know, it's an experiment. And if I'm worried about your risk of recurrence and you can find another way to have a baby or you can wait, you know, because of where you are in your biologic clock or in your social life, then for a lot of women, I say, you know, finish your five years of your hormones, use your banked eggs or embryos then, and then get back on. Or if, you know, so it really very much depends on that person's desires and situation as well as their disease risk in terms of how I counsel someone. That that all makes good sense. It's it's very individualized. And I'm curious too, are there any other safety concerns for the woman besides an increased risk of recurrence uh, with stopping the hormonal therapy? Or is that really the biggest issue? So the safety concerns surrounding pregnancy are Myriad, right? Because pregnancy is not a spectator sport, whether you've had breast cancer or not. Anybody you know who has been pregnant or knows a pregnant person ever <laughs> knows that. Fortunately, in the developed world, most women do great through pregnancies, so we shouldn't be afraid of it. That being said, there are risks that surround pregnancy baseline. And you know, when we were trying to get the study approved by our ethics boards, they kept bringing up the risk of pregnancy, and we kept saying. Yes, we understand there are risks to pregnancies, but, you know, women are going to have pregnancies. That's kind of, you know, biologically how, how we continue as a species. And so the question is, is there more risk for these women because of their history of breast cancer? And the answer is yes. So it very much depends. But the first thing and the thing we worry the most about is what if the cancer comes back during the pregnancy? and Fortunately, that's rare. Thank God that's rare because that's bad. That is hard. <laughs> you know, if it comes back just in the breast or in the chest wall area, it's doable and you can take care of that woman and she could be okay and that baby can be okay or the unborn, uh, the fetus. But if it comes back elsewhere in the body and you're facing a, I need to treat the cancer because the woman's going to get sick and it could hurt her, but it could hurt the baby, the unborn fetus, the fetus, if I treat the mom. That's a real problem, right? So we, we deal with it, and that does occasionally happen, but that's the worst part. So that is what we worry about the most. That's one, because these women are at risk, right? Just because we don't think it increases the risk, that doesn't mean they don't have risk. Right. The second thing is, are they at higher risk of pregnancy-associated complications? So for example, if a woman got chemotherapy in her past, and she got adriamycin, very commonly given for breast cancer, and her heart was fine through the treatment, is she at more risk than the average of having a problem with her heart around the pregnancy? And the truth is we don't know the answer to that. So part of this study will gather information on those things. 
anecdotally, we don't think it's a very common problem, right? Because a lot of us have had people have babies after breast cancer, including anthracycline treated women. And we haven't seen a whole lot of, you know, florid heart failure after these women went on to have babies, but we've never gathered the information systematically. So we don't know the answer to that question. So this study will also address that and things like that. Do they have more peripartum complications? By the same token, the question is, are the babies at more risk, right? And, you know, do they come out sooner because you've been treated with tamoxifen? And is the uterus different? Is the baby smaller because that woman got treated with tamoxifen? I mean, we have no idea. We don't think so. Again, there's no kind of speculation that they would be worse off, those babies. When we look at adult survivors of childhood cancers, right, which is a group who had been you know, got treated for cancer, grew up, and then were able to have babies, both men and women, there's not any evidence that the children or the pregnancies of those patients, assuming that they weren't radiated in their pelvic organs and all their parts are in place, there's not any evidence that pregnancy is worse for those patients if they remain fertile. They are more likely to not be fertile, and that's a different issue, but if they have pregnancies, there's not evidence that those patients have a much harder time with their pregnancy or are more likely, if they go in healthy, there's not evidence that they are going to come out less healthy. And then the second thing is there's not evidence that their babies are more likely to either have a complication, again, if the mom went in healthy um, and didn't have some you know, known leftover problem from her cancer that would affect fertility or childbearing. And there's also not evidence that the genetics of that baby who is mother or father got exposed back when, especially the eggs, which are there for when a woman is born to chemotherapy, as long as you're far enough out from the chemotherapy, it doesn't appear that the eggs of that, that may turned into that fetus, that embryo and then fetus eventually are damaged any more than they otherwise would have been based on the age of that mother, because that does increase the risk of egg abnormalities and chromosomal abnormalities. So I think that's reassuring, but I also think that we don't know, we don't know the full answer to that question. And that's part of what the study is going to look at. So the women in the study who have a baby, they breastfeed, does that offer them any recurrence risk? Because I've seen some studies showing that breastfeeding can reduce risk of breast cancer, um, having pregnancies can reduce the risk of breast cancer. So in this situation, does having a baby help or is that something else that you hope to be gathering answers about? Yeah, so that's a tricky question because what you're talking about is preventing breast cancer. And what we're really focused on here is prevention or not getting in the way of prevention of recurrence, which are different, right? Because one is primary prevention where there is good evidence that having a baby before 30 and breastfeeding is associated with women being less likely, especially in their postmenopausal time, to get breast cancer. Very well studied across many, many studies. Now we're saying, okay, if you're a survivor of breast cancer, how do those things affect a new primary breast cancer, but most importantly, the risk of recurrence of the cancer you've already had? And we don't know the answer to that. And yes, we are collecting those things. Although the issue about prevention of new primary cancer would take a long, long time to study and a lot more patients than 600 because the rates of developing a new primary cancer are much lower in general 
even in breast cancer survivors, than the rates of recurrence, unfortunately. So our primary outcome is looking at risk of recurrence in our group. So if a woman is listening to this podcast and she is perhaps interested in being part of this study, what should she do? I'm going to put the link to the clinical trials page on our website, but is there something else she can do? Does she need to talk to her oncologist first? Does she need to be referred to the study? How does that work? Sure. So if a woman is interested in being a part of the positive trial, it is running at select sites throughout North America and in the U.S. and Canada. And that clinicaltrials.gov website lists the sites. So if you're in a city, because most of them are in cities, where the study is open, not every, not every site opened them that's part of our, this group, the Alliance, where the, which the study is being run through, but it's also um, being run through the other uh, National Cancer Institute-sponsored groups. Many, many sites have opened it, even though this is a small group of patients because they realize how important it is. Doctors and researchers realize that we need to help these young women to learn more. In that situation, you can go online and see if there's a city near you or a site near you. And then I always think it's best to talk to your doctor about it first so that you can get their perspective. Um, you don't have to, and you can just reach out to that site and um, reach out and ask questions about whether or not the person who's running the study or one of their colleagues could see you in consultation about the positive trial. Um, I'm in Boston, Massachusetts at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and I've been taking calls about this and speaking to women a, a fair bit about whether or not it makes sense for them, even if they're not in Massachusetts. And I often know who's got the study open. So I'm more than happy to you know, vet some of those calls. You can call our office at 617-632-3800. Um, and, and I'm more than happy to help triage, uh, you know, if someone truly thinks they're a candidate and to refer them either back to their own doctor or, you know, depending on what the issue is or to the website or to a specific site. You know, I can say that it is open at, across the country though, at many sites, including in New York city and Atlanta and Boston and Texas and California and Chicago. So it is being Seattle. It is being opened all over the country and there's community sites and there's uh, 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 academic sites. And so I think, you know, the good news is it's supposed to open ultimately about a, at about 100 sites. So there should be some place that's not too far. Like I'm taking care of a lady who's up from upstate New York, which is about three hours from me, who came to me for this problem or this. Her problem was she wanted to get pregnant. And she wanted to get good treatment for her breast cancer. And this is how we're dealing with her problem, which is <laughs> putting her on the study. Dr. Partridge, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast today and talking about this study. I think what the results find will be hugely helpful to a number of women. And I'd like to invite you right now to come back after the study is complete and you have some results to talk about that. You got it. Thank you again.